Christian, Travis, today we've got a doozy. Indeed we have. This is one of the strangest, but uh, in my opinion, most fascinating stories from all of American history. Well, when you, when you first told me about it, Christian, I didn't really fully entirely believe you. I mean, I, I kind of believed you, but it's just so, so freaking insane. And now I read this whole book on it that you gave me. And I guess, Travis, maybe I'll try to give you the gist of it. And Christian, you let me know where I go wrong. Sounds good. Give me the gist. Okay, so here we go. The spirit of Ben Franklin came to a seance in Western New York in the 1850s and convinced a bunch of people to live in a commune, the goal of which was to build a giant electrical baby that would save the world. And for some reason, a bunch of people had to have sex with the electrical baby and also with each other to make it work. Christian, is, is that about right? And it's so, so wrong, but yes, so, so right. Well, I've got so many questions. Travis, what is your reaction? I, that can't possibly be true. There is no way. I, I, I mean, founding father, electrical baby, rampant sex with machines of babies. I don't know. Well, anyway, <laughs> we've got the guy who wrote the book. Uh, we're very fortunate to have John Busher on the show today. And he's going to tell us all about the story of this commune, which I don't even know if it has a name. Christian? Uh, I think they were called the electrical baby fuckers. <laughs> they gotta be. Do you think they made electrical baby fucker t-shirts? Because <laughs> Well, buckle up, folks. This is Communes USA. I'm Dan Greenstone in Chicago, along with Christian Goodwillie from Hamilton College. And that's Travis Chandler at the controls. And here to answer our many, many questions is John Busher author of The Remarkable Life of John Murray Spear, Agitator for the Spirit Land. Well, thank you for, for doing this with us. I've, I've been uh, devouring your book, and we've got so many questions. We're really excited. I've taught American history for decades, and I did not know this story at all, and it's wild and fascinating. It's wild. It's how I got into this subject. I found this bizarre book by Emma Hardinge called... Um, History of Modern American Spiritualism. And I, don't know, I just came across this account in it of Spear and the uh, New Motor. And I thought to myself, this is so strange. The 19th century was far weirder than anybody ever told me. John, I know a little bit more about your background, I think, than these guys, but you've had fascinating career. Would you mind telling us a little bit about the various things you've done in your life? I got my PhD in comparative religion, I guess you would say history of religions, focusing mainly on Tibetan and South Indian religions. So I got a job at the National Endowment for the Humanities as a program officer there. And just at that time, Congress decided that we needed to start international broadcasting to Tibet. The Voice of America started looking for somebody immediately to begin creating a Tibetan service broadcast. Your book, Other Side of Salvation, is I think the clearest um, explanation I've seen of the progression of so many of the universalists and Unitarians into spiritualism, which we certainly will talk about today. Um, your book that we published with the Cooper Press, The President's Medium, is certainly a fascinating account of the role of spiritualism in the life of the Lincoln family. Uh, we'll be publishing your forthcoming book on Elisa Safartha, which is going to be perhaps another podcast episode for us. Okay. Anyway, at some point, I 
I thought instead of focused on Asian religions, I got interested in why Americans got interested in Asian religions. So that led me back to the transcendentalists. I found all these people reading the Bhagavad Gita together, but they weren't all transcendentalists. They were these people called spiritualists that are sitting next to them. I couldn't figure out why in the world spiritualists who were sitting around at seances uh, were interested in Asian religion. Once I started looking at them, I became convinced that, oh, look, spiritualists are real characters. They were far more strange and interesting than, say, Bonson Alcott or, uh, you know, even Emerson. I mean, maybe that's heresy. I don't know. But... <laughs> I wouldn't disagree. I certainly find them more interesting than Thoreau. I think he's very overrated. (laughs) So I just got carried away, I guess. Anyway, that's been what I've been studying for a long time. Oh, it's so interesting. Well, maybe maybe we should dive in. We've got a lot of questions. We're so glad to have you here to talk about John Murray Spear and the communes associated with him and spiritualism. But I think it does start with John Murray Spear, this story. Um, Can you tell us about him? Who was he? He was a Universalist minister, born in 1804 in Boston, and started out poor and apprenticed as a shoemaker. And at some point, he decided to enter the ministry. He had a brother named Charles, who was also a Universalist. In fact, both of them were christened by the famous American founder of uh, universalism, John Murray. And John Murray Spear's parents gave him that name because they were part of John Murray's congregation. Both of the brothers, both John and Charles, had an informal education for the ministry, which was typical of universalists at that time. They both got congregations around Barnstable and Cape Cod in eastern Massachusetts. At some point, both of the brothers became very interested in reform movements. And I think they're most well-known working together on the subject of prison reform and the abolition of capital punishment. Charles was more interested in establishing himself as the intellectual go-to guy or spearhead of the prison reform movement. And he started a uh, very influential journal called The Prisoner's Friend and uh, agitated for prison reform and for the abolition of capital punishment. And John worked with him for a while on that, but uh, also was more hands-on. He spent a lot of time walking the neighborhoods, finding poor people and visiting the uh, prisons and trying to get people represented in court so they wouldn't have to go to prison and so forth. And I think that's typical of John. He was always more down in the trenches than his brother Charles. It's very interesting, John. Uh, Reading your book, there was a quote from Thoreau, who we've mentioned, writing to Emerson about Charles Spear, who was always ranting from his pulpit about beating swords into plowshares. 
Thoreau wrote to Emerson that he thought perhaps Charles Spear should be beaten into a plowshare, uh, <laughs> which is a great quote, but it, it's amazing that these two brothers were on the radars and, and mixed with the really eminent names in the mid-19th century New England reform circles. Uh, why don't we know more about them? Why aren't they better known? Well, in Charles's case, there's several reasons why. One, Unitarians and Universalists came from different classes, you know. Universalists were mostly lower class and Unitarians not. So um, they hadn't yet become one. That's one reason why Charles maybe was seen as something of a, a social climber. And I think Charles had some idea that he was shopping for a niche among the different reform movements that he could achieve some sort of notoriety that way. Charles Spears' diary still exists. And if you look through that, you can see that actually <laughs> he rewrote the diary. He recopied his diary later on. And it looks like he had a view in mind that this was for posterity. People would be interested in him. I think that was part of the reason why people, his fellow reformers were so much suspicious of him. He was sort of single-minded. He was a little screechy. I think that's where that comment comes from about beating Charles into a plowshare. Well, they, they were both really impressively energetic reformers and often at, at real danger to themselves. And I, I really was struck in your book when you talked about what happened to John Murray Spear with the anti-abolition mob. And I'm wondering if you could tell that story. John became a really influential and active member of the New England and Massachusetts anti-slavery societies. and. Um, part of the committee of vigilance that worked to hide slaves and free slaves that were being pursued by slavers from the South and got himself into some very difficult situations. And he was also one of the very few people that were actually hired by the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society to, to be their voice, go on tour and give lectures and speeches. And on one of those tours, upon finishing his speech and walking outside, he was mobbed and stoned and rendered unconscious. He had to be dragged off the street and nobody knew if he would survive for a little while, but he was nursed back to health. So he didn't mind putting himself in danger. He got into a lot of trouble. And he didn't mind hardships of other kind, especially in trying to get people freed from prison and those kinds of things. He was, he was a very active man. So, John, it's the spiritualist movement that provides the transition for John Murray Spear from these previous parts of his life into the part we want to focus on. What, what were the aims of the spiritualist movement? You know, yeah. we know about the Fox sisters, the wrappings in Hydesville, 1848. The yeah. Shakers, uh, with their preceding uh, movement starting in 1837. So we know it's about the agency of spirits working through mortal beings to affect change 
in this material world. Well, I'll tell you, my take on this may be a little odd, but I see that time as a very revolutionary time in terms of religion, especially in New England, because so many of the children of the Calvinist forefathers were beginning to find Calvin to be insupportable, inhumane in a way. And there are numerous stories of, especially universalists, who related their own childhood of suffering under extreme anxiety about whether or not they were part of the elect. They couldn't decide one way or the other. They Maybe the day of judgment had already passed, and they didn't even know if they'd been damned. In some sense, the, the question really had to do with whether or not human agency was possible in a mm-hmm. universe in which everything was predetermined. This actually was something that was an issue that people were faced with when talking about science and the growth of materialism at that time. And I think it was something that when people broke out of that and decided, no, this is unsupportable. They decided, hey, um, let's go romantic. So the, the romantic period was basically following on that uh, decision that, no, we have to look inside. Materialism can't be um, the basis of our life. We need to find some sort of meaning. The other portion of Calvinism, of course, is that there's no communication between heaven and earth. There's no mediation. Uh, you don't pray to the saints. And once you're dead, you're gone, and there's nothing to be said. Uh, there are no angels out there. Um, so in some sense, spiritualism was a, an attempt to bring that back to secure some kind of mediation between heaven and earth and to pick out some way in which human meaning could be remade into something that was effective in the supernatural realm. And I think in such a condition, you're looking for prophets and oracles, and spiritualism was perfectly a part of that, as it was with the Shakers as well. Mother Anne, I see her essentially as a prophet. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So just to follow up on that, as a spiritualist, uh, John Murray Spear began to communicate with people from beyond the grave. And it's an interesting roster, right? And I think if I'm reading your book correctly, one of the, the most frequent people he communicates with is Benjamin Franklin. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So that got me thinking and not a particularly original thought, I suppose, but like the overlap of this time period where there's this appeal of spiritualism and seances is obviously in this period where people are very interested in and fascinated by electricity and obvious connection to Franklin there. And I'm wondering how people's knowledge of or misunderstanding of electricity or fascination with with electricity affected the worldview of the people in Spears' orbit? Yes. I mean, okay, this was a miracle. There were invisible forces at work that we'd never known about here. Yeah, you put up a telegraph. Annihilate time and space, my friends. The theme of... Um, not just 
the romantics, but of, of a lot of what I call millennial machines, inventors whose whole thought about, well, what should we invent next? What do we need next? Uh, throughout the 19th century had to do with annihilating time and space. And it was really a millennial project to bring on the eschaton in a way and to establish a new era human society on a new basis. But it had to do with some sudden recognition that there were invisible forces that could be tapped and controlled and systematized to work within the physical sphere. So it didn't seem so odd to people that, hey, we didn't know anything about electrical forces or magnetism before, but yet now people are harnessing it, discovering all these new things about it. It could be measured and systematized and rationalized. And so maybe there were other psychic forces at work too. John, what you are just talking about reminds me, of course, of Andrew Jackson Davis and his spiritual telegraph. And so we've got this mix, as you pointed out, of science and reconciling with religion. Are these people still Christians? Were they recognized as Christians as they adopted these new outlooks? Ah, well, (laughs) this is a complicated question. Of course, some of them thought of themselves as Christians. In fact, some of them said, yes, we're better Christians than you, quote, orthodox people, because while you have faith, we have faith plus knowledge. And what they were talking about was what they considered to be empirical evidence for the communication between heaven and earth. So, yes, that many of them did consider themselves Christians, good Christians. On the other hand, there was a good segment, I think probably even a majority of spiritualists who were very wavering about traditional Christianity, reformulating it to the point where it was unrecognizable. And then there were also folks who were out and out freethinkers, atheists, who were spiritualists. Now, that seems really weird to to us from our perspective because how can you be a materialist and a spiritualist at the same time it doesn't really make sense to us but they thought of spiritualism as simply a demonstration of a more subtle physical aspect of universal laws in the spiritualist movement there wasn't really a divide between what we would call spiritualist and materialist until like the early 1870s. And at that time, the international Marxist group dumped out all of the, what they regarded as bourgeois um, spiritualists and crazies and ghost talkers from the movement there. But before that, they got along pretty well, held conventions together, shared some convictions, influenced each other. I think in general, though, your question whether or not they were Christians or a good number of them, the ones who weren't, I think, regarded their fellows 
spiritualists who still adhered in, to and called themselves Christians as ignorant, that they hadn't followed through the consequences of what they really believed and were clinging on to old, comforting beliefs that they would eventually evolve out of. Great. So John Murray Spear and his associates are sort of this crew of radicals and eccentrics, I think it's fair to say. And they, they gather in, I think, is it pronounced Cayentone? Cayentone. Cayentone, New York. Um, who are these people? Like, how did he find them? Who are they? What are they doing in Cayentone, New York? John got together a group, maybe 10 or 15 believers in the fact that he was getting spirit messages to do this and that project. And most of these folks were rich. This was before he could get a following through TV or advertising. The way you work is you find a, a few rich people to be your patrons. And there had been a Mineral Springs discovered in kind tone. And it got the reputation for healing and and it was exploited for a few years. Anyway, John got this spirit message saying that it was to be the spiritual center of the universe over the next few years, and that it was located over uh, at buried ancient civilization who were maybe still down there underground, but in any event, the, re the remnants of the, this high civilization was there on the ground. So it was a kind of sacred spot. So they went out there and built a commune out there. John Marie Spear, after he had embraced spiritualism, he had already, as you wrote, trained himself to be a willing subject for mesmerism, if I recall correctly, or to be magnetized. And it was fascinating to read how he worked together with his eldest daughter, Sophronia, to develop uh, what they believe were clairvoyant powers. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I, I think what was going on there was um, inducing trance state, and they used to call it developing mediumship. I'm not an expert in this. I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, so I don't know, but it seems that there's uh, a way to develop yourself as a trance speaker so that basically you're hypnotized and yet you can speak or write hold a pen and you're writing stuff automatically without a conscious effort and he did that and Sophronia did it as well and it was common among mediums they did it a lot that was kind of their trade and as they developed these Powers. I remember at one point he takes up his pen and begins to do artwork. And he says he never before in his life had had any artistic capacity. And suddenly he had it. And other people, especially as he began to receive communications from John Murray, uh, of course, as you noted, the founder of universalism, began to question his sanity. And what I found really poignant was he also began to question his own sanity. You have a quote in your book where these two gentlemen, one of whom was a physician, examined him and both agreed that, quote, Mr. Spear was a lunatic. Mr. Spear himself was not without some apprehensions on the subject and said, I do not know what I am, but how is one to know whether he is insane or not? I surely feel as sane as I ever did. 
And I love that kind of personality conflict. And can you talk about that? Because it was a central force in the rest of his life. Well, you know, just to, as a side issue here, how do you know you're sane? I think if you, if you don't mind me referring back to my previous self, an old Buddhist monk told me once that most people, when they go after seeking spiritual experiences, it's like they think they're going into a restaurant and ordering items off the menu, um, choosing, discriminating, judging, and ordering what they want. But it's not like that. What happens is that judger or discriminator that gets brought into question and dissolves when you open yourself up so you're no longer able to really discriminate and the waitress brings you back your food and lays it down pulls the thing off the top and you're served yourself you know you're (laughs) (laughs) so at that point um you've opened a window you've let go what needed to be let go in order to have that experience, um, but you're no longer in control. So I think it was sort of illuminated about the mind state of someone who finds themselves wondering whether or not they're sane, they're still sane, because they're not the same person they were. Mm. Well, and he gathers this group in Cayentone, and there comes this inspiration to build, I guess we're calling it the electrical infant. And I don't know if that's, if you feel that's the correct description. We tried to give our audience some sense of it, um, but I don't know if I was able to do that in the intro. What is your sense of what they were trying to do here? Um, okay, you ever see Contact? Yes. Like Paul Sagan? Okay. You just imagine them there, right? They're getting some messages. They're getting some information and they're committed to building it, but they don't know what it's going to do yet. So I think these guys were in the same sort of situation, getting these messages. He's getting some hints, but he's not entirely sure what's going on. It's like he's, leaning towards something out there in the atmosphere, out in the spiritual void there. He's seeking, and there are images forming in his mind, most of them based on bits and pieces, flotsam in the culture and other things that are being invented and talked about. And he and his, and his followers are doing their best to weaving them into something coherent but they don't know the end product yet. In fact, at that time that he and his friends were starting to build the new motor, as he called it, or new motive power, there was a a tremendous excitement in the culture about another new motive power that was obviously starting to work. And that was a ship designed by John Erickson called the caloric ship. It was different from a steam engine because it used heated air. The fact that it was respiring and inspiring air rather than steam 
suggested that to them a metaphor that here was a breathing ship. Reporters compared it to a human and said it had a heart because it had a power unit and it had lungs. And so, of course, John and his followers were hearing about that and trying to weave that into what they were building. And of course, I'm sure they'd all read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And they all had millennial expectations that the whole world was going to change and human society would be different. And so So they, they built this thing that was either a perpetual motion machine or uh, a kind of automaton. It would be a being, a new human being that could be brought to fruition without the taint of original sin, it would bypass generation by regeneration. If I can follow up, because we we once again geographically shifted, um, and and I want to also keep some of this greater context in perspective. So one of his great supporters was Simon Hewitt, who had been a Fourierist, then was his great spiritualist advocate, later became a shaker. And this group goes from Western New York to Lynn, Massachusetts, to a location owned by Jesse Hutchinson, who's part of the very popular and well-known reform group, the Hutchinson Family Singers. They're on this high rock site in Lynn, Massachusetts, which uh, did that have some spiritual significance as a site? And, And beyond that, you mentioned that the new motor might bypass original sin, yet it was to be activated expressly by the sex act and sexual energy. Isn't that correct? Yes. I mean, they were experimenting. The thing wouldn't move, so they tried different ways to get it to move. Uh, You know, it needed to be inspired, too, and activated. So they were doing their best. You know, if this didn't work, try the next thing. Lynn had a little history. The High Rock Tower was owned by Jesse Hutchinson, and he had built it as a sort of astral observatory. And it, it, where it's situated, it would overlook the water. You can see Boston from there. So it had a spiritual aerial significance in that way. And the year before they were there, Andrew Jackson Davis, who was one of the co-founders of the spiritualist movement had written about an experience he had had while staying there in which he envisioned and communicated with a, a grand congress of spirits from the other side. In that sense, John was just carrying on where Davis left off. And you wrote that they believed or it did actually move a little? The machine, the infant? Oh, yeah, I mean, you know, it moved a little. I don't know. If it moved, maybe the wind blew it. It didn't mount anything. Okay, it wasn't hooked up to any kind of batteries that would... No. We only have two out of three of the episodes that Hewitt wrote about the machine. Uh, the third one's in an issue of their newspaper, The New Era, which hasn't survived. So we don't know everything about how it was constructed, but it was supposedly had aerials that stuck out and collected energy from the atmosphere. 
but it didn't have any batteries, no. It had zinc parts and copper parts because you needed those in order on the, on the analogy of a battery. Interesting. Um, but they didn't work that way. And there were people with some mechanical aptitude, I think, in the communal group. Did he have any idea what he was talking about? Or did it sound like, you know, his blueprint that he was sort of distilling from the spirits was just nonsense, do you think, to the people around him? <laughs> well, it sounded like nonsense to a lot of people uh, from the get-go. But with faith the size of a mustard seed, okay? As I said, they didn't really know what they were being told was supposed to do. So even if you were skeptical about the design, maybe you want to see what it was. Because it had the authority of the spirits behind it, you see. And they knew more than we did, especially Benjamin Franklin, (laughs) who had been continuing his electrical experiments after his death. So you you write about Spears' marriage and... His wife, when they married, he was probably going to settle down to be a universalist minister in a nice town on Cape Cod where they would have a living and have their children. And then he embarks on this wild career. And you talk about how little his wife was actually involved in any of of the efforts, even prior to his spiritualist period. And then when they get to Lynn and they've tried all these other things to activate the living motor, the spirits reveal to John that he is to play a special role in this activity that is is their last best chance to perhaps spark some life in this motor. Can you talk about what exactly was that role and who was Sarah Newton? Sarah Newton was a spiritualist medium who was the uh, wife of Alonzo Newton. He'd been an editor for various uh, Boston newspapers, and they were both John's followers. They were both John's inner core. Sarah, apparently, during the construction of this new motor, received some kind of message that she would become the mother of the new motor, of the electrical infant, God's best last gift to mankind. It's unclear, really, what went on here. She had experiences that seemed as though she was entering parturition and i don't know how to explain this you can imagine i'm not even sure she was near the motor at the time but she she visited it um they were living in uh, in boston uh, so she played a part in giving birth to it you know because it it wasn't moving it needed something and she was told that you know it needed mothers care it needed a mother to give it birth okay so this is how we're going to try to get it to move and john then also decided as a sort of father i have to transfer energy to it as well so he created this uh, weird mechanical suit that made him into a sort of human battery in a way and somehow touched machine and this sparked great excitement among his followers and especially with hewitt who went back to the publishing his new era paper and declared that it had moved i mean it was that was the climax and but then people visited it to look at this miraculous thing and uh, they didn't see it move 
It ain't doing it, buddy. (laughs) It's going nowhere. So this infant, this electrical baby, it attracted a lot of scrutiny and then ultimately a lot of hostility. Can you tell us about that? What happened to it? Uh, It's unclear what happened. They disassembled it anyway after it became clear it wasn't going to move. And they carried the pieces out to one of Spears' followers. That is Sheldon's house in Upper New York State. And um, put it in the barn there. I don't even know if they really reassembled it. And the next thing you know, John Spear wrote to the newspaper saying that the thing had, had been attacked and destroyed. And I don't know if it was just it, probably a few local boys broke into the place and uh, beat on a little bit. But of course, John built it up into something like the attack on abolitionist newspapers and destroying their presses and so on. It also has strong resonances with Frankenstein again, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Again. Yeah. They, I think they definitely, nobody ever within that group actually brought up Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, but I think it's unavoidable to see that at least Every, everybody else in the press had read Frankenstein and were pretty clear about what they thought of it. Yeah. So we've kind of stepped lightly around the actual issue of sex and, and the sexual act around the activation of the new motor. And I know this book, you published it in 2006, but you've continued to research Spear because uh, we have so many wonderful resources now becoming available through the internet. And one of the things in your your updated article on Spear that I was frankly amazed by was that his daughter, Sophronia, with whom he had first developed his uh, mediumship, uh, died rather young and was uh, somewhat outcast from her family at the time of her death. And in your new research, you seem to indicate that perhaps she'd been involved in kind of a therapeutic sexual mediumship in the Boston area, which could be looked at certainly in a less than flattering light by non-believers. So is that, is that the same kind of sexual activity that might've been surrounding the living motor where it's, it's like a consecrated sacralized sex for a higher purpose. I'm sure. Can you talk about that a little bit? (laughs) We're very curious about it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, uh, the sex act was questionable. Uh, It was a source of all sorts of human problems, and it needed to be reformed along scientific lines, if you will. But um, there's also um, a long uh, and deep history of healing, mediumistic healing by the laying on of hands and maybe the rest of your body. Sex, as it was practiced by traditional human society, so it was believed by the reformers, many reformers, was a false institution that bound people unnaturally to one another who felt no affections for each other. And if they didn't feel any affections for each other, 
it was believed, not knowing really anything about genetics, that the child that they would create, being married but not feeling any affection, would incorporate that malfunction within them and would grow into a human that couldn't realize its greater potential. So what was driving the therapeutic aspect of mediums healing often took physical form and included sex. So I I hear that. (laughs) Yeah. And when you, you presented very logically and one could almost put yourself in the shoes of one of these people. And so therefore the bounds of traditional marriage should be dissolved and we need to open up free love or, or more radical sexual arrangements. And I guess what I'm wondering is I get that that could be a thing where you organically arrive at that view, but it could also very much be a thing where somebody wants to sleep with somebody else and they work backward to post hoc rationalizing it. I mean, so I did a podcast on the Oneida community and the original decision to inaugurate complex marriage was because John Humphrey Noyes wanted to sleep with Mary Cragen. And then he worked backward. And I'm wondering if that's a thing here. Okay. I mean, that's your opinion. Maybe behind all of the free lovers, the the real deal was, look, um, I want to have sex with whoever I want. And people are telling me I can't. So I need to evolve a philosophy whereby I can get whatever I want. Um, I mean, you, you read this and the suspicion arises that, yeah, this is what's going on. I would say that um, if you think you're already perfect, like John Humphrey Noyes, right? The second coming has already occurred. We're already saints, at least those of us who understand it. Anything that we do is is above human judgment. And it's a natural outflow of the perfect people we are. Yeah, I think that's sure. Unless you think that Spear and his followers were somehow superhumans, that, that has to enter into what they were doing. It d- doesn't work logically that you just create a community where people are wandering around sleeping with whoever they want at that moment. Um, no, they didn't really put that together, I think. Well, and but could you talk a little bit, because he does radically change his family arrangements, right? He left his first wife and children. He had three children by her, Betsy, and um, then entered into a, a series of uh, arrangements with his female followers, one of whom he wound up reluctantly marrying at some point. He rationalized that by saying, well, um, it'd be better for the kid if he's not called a bastard. But, you know, didn't put any anything to it besides that. But she, Caroline Hinckley was her name, and she remained his ostensible wife for the rest of his life and her life. But he also had arrangements with other of his female followers. And it looks like he consecrated some of them to special tasks within the new order of things. One of them, for example, Eliza Kenny was made the apostle of the governmentizers, and she would have a political role, it sounded like. And then she was disappointed because I think she probably found he was making 
other arrangements with other of the female of his followers. So this is not really so much different from a lot of people throughout 19th century, 20th century. I mean, I think you'd have to call John a, a cult leader. Of course, one of the main differences between John and a modern cult leader was at least this group didn't stockpile weapons, okay? So, um, but other than that, yeah, I think he was a cult leader. So one of the really fascinating aspects of the spiritualist movement is how they either willingly appropriated the personalities and reputations of so many great historical figures from the past, or were indeed channeling communications from these figures, um, which it's up to everyone to decide on their own judgment. But you point out that on April Fool's Day of all days in 1853, that uh, John Murray Spear received communications from a group of 12 spirits of famous people, uh, among them Benjamin Rush, we've already talked about Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and that they had formed a missionary association for the purpose of organizing communication with Earth. And they had called themselves the Association of Beneficence. Can you talk about that? And what was the public's reaction uh, when some of these mediums would get on stage and speak as if they were speaking for Thomas Jefferson? Um, these were all Republican heroes, right? As people who used to always say, well, you know, you, you're talking about being reincarnated, the reincarnation of Cleopatra or the reincarnation of Joan of Arc or something. But nobody ever says, oh, yeah, I was a reincarnation of Joe Schmo, who was the shoemaker back in the 14th century. Nobody ever knew about him and he died early. But so people, you know, looked at this as well, it's somewhat comical. Um, I mean, there's a whole range of different approaches to this. And certainly John and his followers suffered the slings and arrows of humiliation. But it it is significant that you, if you look at the cast of characters that different people are connecting with, it's almost like you can read their minds about who they thought wasn't were the seminal figures that they were trying to imitate, they were trying to contact. I would love to follow up on that, but you tell such an interesting story towards the end of your book where there's a seance that John Murray Spear is leading and there's apparently a levitating desk. And I want to make sure I'm reading what you wrote correctly. I thought that you were maybe suggesting that was a trick and that maybe that was some evidence that this was a con, that he was tricking people on purpose, which up to that point, I hadn't sensed. I had thought that you were saying he was sincere in his belief that he was communicating with the spirit. So I'm wondering how you think about, about that. I don't have enough information to know, you know, to read into his mind. I still don't. Um, it is surprising, though, that he wasn't really known for producing what was called phenomenal manifestations. There's no floating hands, glowing phosphorus, ectoplasms, trumpets floating in the air, playing guitars or any of that. And he didn't set up what would be the classic seance circles in the dark. He didn't do those things. But on this occasion, he did. And I think maybe he wasn't leading that seance because in that seance group, there was uh, also Emma Hardinge, who was down on him. Uh, so there was a sense of competition. And 
I still don't know what John was doing. Was he a believer? I mean, did he really believe or was he manipulating things? He's a very peculiar figure in that way. Well, I had a thought is maybe, I mean, it's obviously just wild speculation and maybe there's no way to know, or maybe it's just crazy, but it is interesting to me. He started out as a universalist minister and then it was at 1842. It's a very serious injury when the anti-abolition mob attacks him. He almost dies. He loses consciousness. And I wondered if there was some brain damage of some kind. Could could be. Help explain. But I might have brain damage too. I mean, <laughs> to, to use that as an explanation for, for his conversion to spiritualism, I, I don't think it works. It's it's easy to say, well, yeah, he, he had brain damage. Uh, and maybe he did. But did millions of other people have brain damage who became spiritualists? I don't know. Um, he was his own guy. I mean, it, I, I don't know. People could diagnose him as having certain kinds of temporal motor damage. But on the other hand, the, the message is he wasn't actually hearing voices. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. He was getting messages, but he wasn't hearing them. And if he was hearing them, that way right. you'd have a definite diagnosis, I think. Yeah, there was no, nothing auditory he was hearing. Yeah, there was nothing auditory. Interesting. Um, I don't know. And also, these things didn't take him over. Mm-hmm. In other words, he could get up on a platform and put himself into communication with the spirit and then begin to speak or sit himself down next to his amanuensis, the person who takes the dictation, and get a message. So he had control in a way that someone with brain damage probably wouldn't. If he had brain damage, it would be intermittent. It would be something he couldn't predict. He couldn't start it on his own. Um, that makes sense. It's a puzzle. In the ferment of this reform era, there's all these organizations being founded and named. We already talked about the association of the beneficence, and you mentioned other quote-unquote organizations within Spears' sphere. So the Association of Governmentizers, Association of Healthizers, they even convened a Congress of the General Assembly of Spirits. When Pascal Beverly Randolph enters the story, and uh, there's the wonderful biography of him written by Pat Tavini, we learn about him being the emissary carrying a message across the Atlantic Ocean, and they're going to inaugurate another almost quasi-Masonic secret order called the Order of the Patriarchs. Can you talk about that, and did it ever really come to fruition? They set it up, they got members, and then it blew up after a little while. After they got a certain number of members, I don't know how many. I think it exploded because it was at that time that John's various relationships with women in the in his group got outed. And since that was a scandal, everybody left. Part of the inner group left and part of the general membership. This is, is very... Um, typical of the various iterations of the groups that Spear set up, that there was always an inner group who operated freely and practiced free love, and an outer group who was recruited from the general public and who were given only a certain amount of very vague and high-sounding purposes of the organization. That was very typical. And that happened with the Order of the Patriarchs. 
and uh, later with the following iteration of his very similar project called the Sacred Order of Unionists. Same thing happened. When the activities of the inner group were made known, everybody left. The, the thing just fell apart. One thing I'd love to know, John, he's so interesting, John Murray Spear, and I'm trying to process him in my, my brain. And like, what I'm wondering if you can help me think about is he's such an interesting social critic in his career. He's an adamant abolitionist and, and reformer of prison, and he spoke out about animal rights and obviously a critic of traditional marriage and a feminist in many ways. And from a 21st century perspective, these are such admirable positions to have such far-sighted positions. And then he has this other side that is really hard to understand. You've been so kind in helping us try to understand where he was coming from with building the electrical motor. And then he has these other ventures like digging a tunnel deep into the earth and hunting for buried treasure that I can't quite cosign. And I'm wondering if those poles that I, I'm feeling them as like, here's this guy with, with these wild views and these guys with these amazing views. And I'm wondering if in some way they're connected and it's all part of the same package or if there's a dissonance there that you see. It's the same package. How so? Look at it this way. He's John Murray Spear as a reformer was one with with all the reformers that everybody cites and knows about, inspired by transcendentalism and German idealism and romanticism, all those folks from New England. But you know what? He was also a Yankee peddler. He was a guy who, unlike Emerson and Alcott and so on, he was a guy who also admired the typical Yankee inventiveness. These guys who invented new kinds of egg beaters and stuff like that. And that was part of him, too. And in, in a way, I mean, you could see him as somebody who said, OK, look, I'm a practical spiritualist. And to him, that meant, OK, you have these visions about a new world and a different kind of society. Yeah, let's go do it. Let's try to make it work. Let's put the pieces together. And when he put the pieces together, this is what you got. You got the new motor. You got a tunnel 200 feet down looking for treasure. You got a free love community that fell apart. You got all these things. So he was different. And I think he was unique in a way. You know, he got cut off despite his history of being right up among all these other reformers and abolitionist movements and so on, he got cut off. Nobody would talk to him among his former colleagues. They certainly didn't mention him in what they wrote. And he was regarded as a lunatic. From John's point of view, he was just simply trying to actualize what his colleagues had always talked about. I mean, it's very, it's very striking. In a way, if you look at John's ideas in seeing him as almost the inventor of steampunk, right? This guy was living a science fiction future in the, in the middle of the 19th century. So he wasn't making it up in a way. He wasn't retroing. He was looking forward into the future. But the product looked very steampunky. So, um, I mean, it's, it's an insoluble problem, really. It's something good to chew on, seeing the contradiction there, and I don't know how to resolve it. Fascinating.
He he almost seems to me like uh, a bungling John Humphrey Noise or a John Humphrey Noise with ADD or something. Um, do you think there was uh, a lack of personal charisma on his part that didn't allow him to cement his ideas into the kind of lived order that Noise achieved? No, I I think maybe he didn't settle. I mean, I don't know. It may have been a combination of circumstances that it just didn't work out for him. But the fact that he wanted to push these projects to completion and he wasn't going to settle for, and a, uh, you know, like setting up a vineyard of several thousand acres uh, and collecting dues and making people work for nothing. I mean, he wouldn't settle for that. He wanted to transform the entire world from pole to pole. That was his mission. I don't think it was Noise's mission. Noise would settle for something more personally gratifying. That's a fair point, yeah. And maybe that's crazy. So that's what you have to figure out with John Murray Spear. Yeah. <laughs>